invite kids here, kindergarten to second grade, to be dismissed to Children's Church. And with the rest of you, open up your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7. Today we come in Hebrews 7, it's on page 1187, to a study of that character that you've been thinking about all week, Melchizedek. You know, it's funny, the more you uh, learn about something, typically, the more you know, the more you really can appreciate and savor something. Uh, Take, for instance, a small plant known as the hosta. Do you know what a hosta is? It's like a green leafy plant. If I showed you one, you'd see it. They're like, you know, on gardens and things like that. And Well, my father-in-law is a hosta aficionado. He, he loves hostas. He, I think he's up to about a hundred of them on his property. And everyone has a little metal name plant, name tag, stuck in the ground in front of the plant. He has bred his own hostas. He has created new varieties of hostas. And the ones he really likes, he names after his daughters. Which tells me either he loves his daughters or he thinks his hostas are his children. I'm not sure which. But if you were to go to his house and ask for a tour of the hosta zoo and um, were to be shown around, you know, he'd start telling about the different hostas. And at first you're like, what is, what is this? But, but then you start to see that hostas really are amazingly unique and, and diverse. You start to see that they come in all sizes. There's little ones with skinny little leaves with wiggly edges. And there's big lush ones that are like five feet wide with huge round uh, leaves. And they come in every shade from sort of dark bluey greens to really bright yellow greens. And some of them are plain. Some of them have uh, this is a big a hosta word, variegation. There's different colors sort of running down them. Some are smooth, some are puckered. And, and you know, like, and so what happens is he starts showing you all these hostas and, and suddenly you find yourself thinking like, man, hostas, that's pretty sweet. <laughs> and then, then the thought crosses your mind, you know, that one would look great by my back door. And the next thing you know, you're now into hostas. And I have to tell you, every time I see a hosta now, I never see it the same way. I'm always thinking, oh, wow, look at that one. You you just start to notice it. Because once you've been taken in depth into a certain topic or a certain field of study, you you start to really appreciate and savor something in a way you didn't otherwise. You know, anyone could go to Notre Dame Cathedral and stand amazed at Notre Dame Cathedral. But spend two hours going around Notre Dame with an expert in Gothic cathedral architecture. And I'm telling you, by the end of it, you will savor that cathedral in ways that you never could have before. Well, today, we come in Hebrews to a text, and we realize that our, the author of Hebrews is an aficionado. He is an expert. He has come to savor and treasure something. The author of Hebrews is an aficionado of Jesus and the Gospel. And he wants to take us on a tour a hosta tour, a cathedral tour. He wants to take us deeper into the Gospel than perhaps we've gone before. He wants to take us from a mere superficial surface understanding of Jesus and the cross to a deeper, richer, fuller understanding of the cross. 
He wants to take us beyond just ask Jesus into your heart as your personal Savior. I mean, that's one way to present the Gospel. That's what we tell children in the first grade Sunday school class. But He wants to take us to more foundational levels than that. And why does He do it? Why is that important? Well, because it is so hard being a Christian in this world. And we need to have the Gospel grounded and deep and rich in our understanding and our hearts so that when the trials of this world come and the battles and the temptations come, we're going to be able to stand our ground because we have more than just a surfacey appreciation of what the Gospel is. We've gone deep and we have learned to savor the Savior. We've learned to treasure Christ so that when the world comes at us, we will, unlike the people in Hebrews here who were fading back and giving way, we will stand in our faith because we've come to really know what, who Jesus is and what He's done for us. And so as we come to Hebrews chapter 7, we come to this sort of strange teaching, it, it seems to us at first, about this guy named Melchizedek. This is one of those parts of the Bible you come to when you're casual reading and, and you start reading and you start thinking, what, what, is this, what, what is this going on here? I don't understand this. I need to go to something else. But if we take time to be led by the tour guide into this deeper understanding of the Gospel, I think it's going to bear fruit. So if you look at chapter... Actually, we'll start at chapter 6, verse 20. It's talking about Jesus. It says, Jesus has become a high priest forever in the order of... And here's this character, Melchizedek. So Melchizedek was a high priest and Jesus has become our high priest. That's the Gospel. He's our high priest in the order or the type of Melchizedek. Well, who is Melchizedek? And how does that help us understand Jesus? Well, we get a little explanation in chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. So, we have Melchizedek here. The author of Hebrews is recounting a story and what, what we find is when you look in the Old Testament, Melchizedek appears two times in the entire Old Testament. Two appearances of this character. And the first one is being referenced here. It's from Genesis. I want to read that with you. So if you could put a bookmark here in Hebrews, and let's turn back to Genesis chapter 14. Genesis chapter 14. And here's the first occurrence of Melchizedek in the Old Testament. This is what Hebrews 7 is referring back to. Just a little background where we're at in the story of Abraham. Abraham, Father Abraham, has just come back from battle. He has rescued his uh, nephew Lot from the hands of some foreign kings who captured him. And through a daring midnight raid with a few men, God enabled Abraham to beat the kings and rescue Lot and take the plunder. And so now Abraham's coming back victorious from battle with his nephew in tow and with all the plunder from the kings he defeated. It says in uh, Genesis 14, verse 17, after Abraham returned from defeating Kedorlaomer and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh. That is the, valley, the king's valley. Then verse 18, here's Melchizedek. He suddenly walks into the scene. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, which is probably Jerusalem, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abraham, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. 
And then that's it. There it is, folks. That's Melchizedek. Three verses. And that's the whole thing. <laughs> it's just like, okay, so here's Abraham coming back. This guy comes out with the bread and the wine, sort of doing this priestly thing. He blesses him. Abraham gives him a tithe, a tenth of all the plunder. And then, poof, Melchizedek's gone. So, like, you know, who, is, who was that masked man? You know, what's going on in this story? Why is this so important? Well, now go back to Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 to 10. The author of Hebrews wants to tell us something that's important in that story. And basically what he wants to show us is this. Let me just sum up verses 1 to 10. It's that Melchizedek was greater than Abraham. And therefore, and here's going to be the logic leading into the next section of chapter 7, therefore, because Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, Melchizedek is also greater than Abraham's descendants, who include the tribe of Levi, from whom what came? The Old Testament priesthood. Okay? So in other words, Melchizedek, the priest of God Most High, is greater than the Old Testament priesthood. That's the argument. Does that make sense? Because Abraham... Uh, showed that he was inferior to Melchizedek. Therefore, Abraham's descendants and the priesthood, the Old Testament priesthood that would come out of Abraham is inferior to the Melchizedek priesthood. Okay, so I, I know we're on a hostitor. And right now you're going, what is this? Why? We'll get there, okay? You just got to go through the hostitor. All right. So why is Melchizedek greater than Abraham? The author of Hebrews gives us three reasons. The first one is in Chapter 7, verse 3. Number 1, it's because Melchizedek has a timeless quality to him. It says in uh, verse 3, without father, without mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, like the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. So Melchizedek doesn't have a genealogy. We don't know who this guy is. In the Old Testament, genealogies are very important. Have you ever made a New Year's resolution to read the Bible cover to cover? You start reading it, and you're like, oh, this is cool, I can do this. And then you hit the genealogies. So-and-so was the son of so-and-so, who was the son of so-and-so, who was the son of so-and-so, and that one was the son of this person. And then you're like, what is this? Genealogy stuff. Well, it's very important in the Old Testament to trace the, the flow of God's promises from Adam to Abraham to Moses, to see that God was being faithful to His promises. But Melchizedek has no genealogy. So he kind of comes out of nowhere. It's not that he's an eternal being, but he has a kind of timeless quality to him. He's not part of Abraham's lineage. He's something different. He's something other. He's something greater. The second reason Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, and I think this is the main one, is because Abraham gives Melchizedek a tithe. Look at verse 4. Just think how great he was. How great Melchizedek was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. Now the law requires the descendants of Levi, uh, who became priests, to collect a tenth from the people that is their brothers, even though their brothers are descended from Abraham. This man, however, did not trace his descent from Levi, yet he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. So, do you see kind of the logic there? In the Old Testament, the tribe of Levi were the priests. They collected a tithe from all their other people who were also descendants of Abraham. But Melchizedek was so great, he collected a tithe, not just from the people of Israel, but from their father Abraham, great old father Abraham. You know, Look at verses 9 and 10. This is kind of interesting. One might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth through Abraham. 
Because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. So he says it's kind of like the Old Testament priests were giving a tithe to the Melchizedek priest. So again, the point is, Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. And then the third evidence is there in verse 6. The third reason why Melchizedek is greater than Abraham is in verse 6. It says, This man, however, did not trace his descent from Levi, yet he collected a tenth from Abraham. Here we go. And blessed him who had the promises. And without a doubt, the lesser person is blessed by the greater. So the third evidence is that Melchizedek is greater than Abraham is because Melchizedek blessed Abraham. So if I was shooting a movie of this, this is kind of how I do it in my mind, I imagine Abraham coming and kneeling before Melchizedek, and Melchizedek placing his hands on Abraham and blessing Abraham, showing that he was superior. The greater blesses the lesser. Melchizedek is the blesser. Abraham is the blessee. So the point of all this is, that, that the writer of Hebrews wants to point out, is that Melchizedek is greater even than Abraham. Great father Abraham. Abraham who is the father of the people of Israel. Abraham who by faith is the father of the new Israel, the church. Great father Abraham who who is the one to whom God's promises of the Savior came. That great father Abraham humbles himself before Melchizedek and gives him a tithe. So, now let's press the argument forward. Are you tracking with me still? Here we go. There's a logic to all this. When you come to verse 11, we're now shifting gears to Jesus. Because remember, Jesus is a priest, the high priest, but He's not an Old Testament priest. He's a priest like Melchizedek. So, as Abraham was great, as Abraham, (laughs) Melchizedek was greater than Abraham, so Jesus, who is in the order of Melchizedek, is greater than the priesthood that came out of Abraham. That's the logic. This is the way the whole thing is moving. Now, how does the author of Hebrews get this? Where does Jesus come in? Well, we have to go to the second, the only other Old Testament reference about Melchizedek, which is, do you know? Psalm chapter 110. So now put a bookmark here. Let's go back to Psalm 110, which is the other Old Testament reference. It's on page 603, Psalm 110. We've talked about Psalm 110 before. Very important psalm to the early church. We've talked about Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So here's this strange psalm. King David is saying, The Lord, that is God, says to my Lord, okay, so who is David's Lord? Hmm. Sit at my right hand. So David is saying that God is saying to another person, sit at my right hand. And no one sits at God's right hand because that means the person shares in the divine prerogatives. So this is a really strange verse. And the early Christians saw this and they said that's referring to Jesus. Jesus is the Lord who sits at the Lord's right hand, who is the Lord of David. So what the author of Hebrews does is he takes it a step further. He says, well, what else does Psalm 110 tell us about Jesus then? And he looks at verse 4. Look at verse 4 of Psalm 110. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Aha! There's the second reference to Melchizedek. So the author of Hebrews, he's just connecting the dots. He's saying, okay, here's Genesis. Melchizedek's greater than Abraham. Okay, Psalm 110. The Messiah will not only be a king, but he'll also be a priest. 
And he'll be like Melchizedek. So therefore, Jesus is the great priest who's like Melchizedek. And so, going back now to Hebrews chapter 7, do you see the flow? you see the logic? So now what he wants to show us is that that Old Testament priesthood that showed us our need of a Savior was insufficient. And now God has replaced it with something greater. The priesthood of Melchizedek fulfilled in Jesus. Look at verse 11 of chapter 7. If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of the law, of it the law was given to the people, why was there still need for another priest to come, one in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron? That Old Testament priesthood didn't work. It couldn't make us perfect. The Old Testament priesthood, it couldn't forgive our sins. It couldn't change our hearts. And it couldn't give us the strength to become more holy. The Old Testament priesthood that that was established there, it couldn't justify us, it couldn't regenerate us, and it couldn't sanctify us, and it definitely couldn't raise us from the dead. It can't save us. It, It didn't work. It wasn't perfect. And so, in the Old Testament itself, there is talk of a coming priesthood, a better priesthood, a forever priesthood like Melchizedek's priesthood. And Jesus fulfills that. Now, we know that Jesus, if he's a priest, he's not like the old priest because he didn't come from that priestly tradition. Look at verse 12. For when there's a change of priesthood, there must be a change of law. There's a whole new priesthood being established here. Verse 13. He, that is Jesus, of whom these things are said, belonged to a different tribe, and no one from that tribe ever served at the altar. What tribe did Jesus come from? Not the tribe of Levi. What did he come from? Judah. Okay, verse 14. For it is clear the Lord descended from Judah. In regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. So this Jesus, this new priesthood, he's not the old priesthood because he's not even from the right tribe. Okay, so how did he become priest then? Well, verse 15. What we have said is even more clear. If another priest like Melchizedek appears, one who became a priest not on the basis of a law or regulation as to his ancestry, it's not that he was from the right tribe, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. He's this timeless priest. He's of a different order altogether. For it is declared you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So here's the summary. The former regulation, the old system, is set aside. Why? Because it was weak and useless. For the law, the Old Testament law, made nothing perfect. And a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. The Old Testament system of priesthood, sacrifices, temple, the holy days has been set aside in Christ or fulfilled in Christ because it was weak and useless. It couldn't make us perfect. The Old Testament system couldn't forgive our sins, it couldn't change our hearts, and it couldn't give us the power to live for God, and it certainly couldn't raise us from the dead. That's what it's telling us. Which is kind of interesting. You know, I was kind of thinking about this, and I was like, huh, isn't that interesting? Because who created the Old Testament sacrificial system? God. Right? It's not like the Israelites were sitting around one day saying, you know, we guys, we should invent a religion. What do you guys think? Hey, priests, high priests, what should we do here? Hey, Levi, do you want to do it? No, no. God came down, and God's like, hey, here's what you're going to do. You're going to build a temple. You're going to build a tabernacle. It's going to look like this. It's going to look like this. It's going to have this type of curtains. It's going to have this many rooms. Here's the dimensions. And then you're going to have a sacrificial system. You can sacrifice these animals, those animals, not those, not those. And then you're going to have a priest. He's going to wear this. He's going to be dressed in this. 
And the, you know, Israelites are like, okay, okay, okay. All right, all right, go, let's build it. God told us what to do. So God created this whole sacrificial Old Testament system. And yet, it doesn't actually save. So the Old Testament priesthood and sacrificial system reveals our need for salvation, but it is incapable of meeting our needs for salvation. Isn't that interesting? It reveals that we need a Savior, but it cannot meet the need for a Savior. So, when the priest in the Old Testament is going up to the temple, to the holy place where only he can go, it shows us that we need a go-between between us and God to bridge that gap between a holy God and a sinful people. And yet, that priest could not actually meet that need, even though he showed us the need. In the Old Testament, when, when the people would bring their sacrifices for their sins and they would put their hands on the goat and confess their sins over it, and then the priest would slaughter the goat. And it was such a, a symbol, a powerful symbol, that our sin demands judgment. And that if we're going to stand before holy God, we need a sacrifice in our place. It symbolized that. And yet, that lamb could never actually take away our sin, even though it showed that we needed a sacrifice. So the Old Testament system revealed our need for salvation through a sacrifice and a priest, and yet it could not provide it. And so, verse 18, the former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect. It couldn't perfect us before God. And a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. And that better hope is this superior priesthood through Jesus and the order of Melchizedek. Are you starting to like hostas now? Is, is the Gospel sparkling a little bit for you? Let's press a little further. Are you starting to see this? This is really cool. You have to think. It takes a little effort. But it's amazing. So let's read about this better system. It's in verse 20. And it was not without an oath. Others became priests without any oath, but He, Jesus, became a priest with an oath when God said to Him, The Lord has sworn and will not change His mind. You are a priest forever. Because of His oath, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. This is a better priesthood. It's a better covenant because it's not based upon ancestral lineage and law. It's based upon the promise and oath of God. What an amazing concept of God swearing an oath. Seth talked about this last Sunday, but I just want to dwell on that a little bit again. You know, how does God swear an oath? What an amazing thought of God swearing an oath. Like, how does God swear an oath? I mean, that's an interesting question. You know, all right, God, I want you to make me a promise. Okay. I want you to swear, God. Okay. I want you to swear to God. I am God. Uh, okay, well, put your hand on the Holy Bible. I wrote the Bible. You know, it's the Holy Bible because it's my word. All right, well, swear on your mother and father's grave. I don't have a mother and father. I, I am. <laughs> you know, I was, I am, I will be. Like, how does God swear an oath? You know, he's, God is the foundation of oaths. He is the foundation of all truths and all reality. And everything you think is firm in, in this world is upheld by God's power. He is what makes reality real. He's what makes truth true. So how does God swear an oath? It's just a kind of a weird thought. It's one of those interesting paradoxes in the Bible. So when 
He who is the foundation of reality swears an oath. Then that oath from God has now become the most solid, most firm, most rock-solid thing in all of the universe. It is more certain than gravity. It is more certain than the law of thermodynamics. You can count on the oath of God more than anything else. It's the most firm reality there is in all of the universe is God who has sworn an oath. And what has God sworn? That Jesus will be our priest forever. (laughs) This is the most certain thing in an uncertain world where countries are fighting against other countries, where the economy is on this roller coaster just going down right now, where everything is in flux, where we don't know about our lives, where they will go, where they will end, how long we have. There is one thing that is certain. It is that Christ is our priest forever. And so when God swears an oath, it's like, it's like that sound that sets off an avalanche. And this avalanche of divine purpose is moving through the universe and nothing can stop it. A tsunami of divine energy and purpose is flowing through the timeline and nothing can stop it. God is going to save a people through a high priest who cannot be replaced, that is not weak and useless, but through Jesus who actually accomplishes the purposes of God because it's based upon the oath of God. Verse 23, there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office, that old priesthood, But because Jesus lives forever, He has a permanent priesthood. He's permanent. And then I love verse 25. Therefore, this is where it starts coming home for us, He is able to save completely those who come to God through Him because He always lives to intercede for them. You know, the Old Testament didn't meet our needs, but look at verse 26. Such a high priest meets our need. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens, unlike other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins, not his own, their sins once for all when he offered what? Himself. He's the one who can actually sacrifice for us. For the law appoints as high priests men who are weak. But the oath, the promise which came after the law, appointed the Son who has been made perfect forever. Go back to verse 25. He can save completely. This high priest is effective. The old covenant, weak and ineffective. This one can actually make us perfect. Jesus actually can forgive our sins. He actually can change our hearts. He actually can give us strength to become holy. And He actually can raise us from the dead someday. Only Christ can do that. He can save completely. I think of all the things we tend to look to for salvation and for hope. Some of them are good, but even the best ones only give partial, temporary, fractional help. They're one little piece of a puzzle, and I need the whole thing. I need the whole puzzle, and only Christ can give that. You know, we go to church to try to better ourselves. We, we take classes, and those are good, and they're a piece of the puzzle. 
We read self-help books and we go to self-help seminars. We go to 12-step programs to deal with addictions. And those are good. They can give us a piece of the puzzle. Um, we, uh, we go on a spiritual pilgrimage to India to go to some ancient shrine and meditate at the foot of some guru. We, uh, we take dietary supplements and we change our diets to try to better ourselves. And that helps a little here and there. We go talk to a therapist or we talk to a specialist or we talk to a financial advisor or we go talk to a pastor. And that's good too. Then they give a piece of the puzzle. But only Christ has the power to save us completely and totally. And even when those people help us, I believe it's because God's power is working through them. It's God who does the work. And so even as we engage in in using these things in life, which aren't necessarily bad, we have to keep our eyes focused on Christ. What my sinful heart tends to do is to ignore the Lord and to think that this little thing I'm doing is it. But ultimately, Christ saves completely. And only the Lord can do that. And so we need to come to Christ. He is the high priest we need. He's the Melchizedekian kind of priest, not the old Abrahamic Levitical kind of priest. I love it. He says he is able to save completely those who come to God through him. I just want to say this morning, God can save you. God can forgive you. God can change your heart. He can forgive your sins. He can change your heart. He can help you to live a godly life and he can raise you from the dead. Jesus can do that. But you have to come to God, and do you see that key phrase? Through Him. See, I think there are people who are looking for God. Maybe you're looking for God. But you've got to go through the door that God has made. That's the thing that people miss. There's a lot of talk about God, but not a lot of talk about Jesus. But God, who we're looking for, has established a way to Him, which is Christ, based upon His oath. God has established the priests that we need. And until we come to Christ, we won't find the way in to God. You know, I remember uh, this fall, just a little illustration of this. I, this fall, I, I was going to the missions banquet over at Hingham High School. We had our missions banquet over there. And I, I went early in the morning with my kids, and we were just going to help set up the tables and stuff with the setup crew. And uh, it was fun. But we, we got to the door, you know, went to the door of the high school, and it was kind of cold out, and it was locked. So we, we went around, and like, huh, how do we get in to help? So we went around, and we found another door. And it was locked. And by this time, a couple people from church came and they were looking to how to get in. And so now there's a little troop of us walking around and it was locked. And we went around to the... We went all the way around this huge high school until we got way around the backside parking lot of Hingham High School. If you know the school, you know where this is. And way around the backside, there was a door to the, the dining hall and finally that door opened. And we finally went in. You know, you can want to get in, you can want to know God, but you've got to know how to get there. And you see in verse 25, it's those who come to God through Him. He is the door that God has established. I just want to encourage you to, to put your faith in Christ and trust in Him. That's the key that you've been looking for. But notice there's more. Look at the, other, the, the end of verse 25, and I'll close with this. It's those who come to God through Him because He always lives to intercede for them. So in other words, this is not just a message for how to come to Jesus in the first place, but this is a message for all of us as Christians because Jesus continues to stand as our high priest interceding for us. You know, where is Jesus today? Where is He right now at 9.35 a.m. Sunday morning? Where is Jesus? 
He's at the Father's right hand, right now, praying for your soul and interceding for God's power on behalf of your soul. Man, what a high priest! He doesn't die. He's still there. He's still at work for us, seeking to save us completely. So this isn't just a message for how to become a Christian. This is really a message for how to press on in our faith as Christians. The book of Hebrews is written to tired, uh, struggling, stumbling, about to turn back Christians. And I just want to say, for those of us who fall in that category, which is the majority of us, God is still there. The priest is still there. He can still save us completely. He's still interceding for us. So I just want to challenge you for 2009. Here it is, New Year. I just want to challenge you and me to hope big for 2009. I don't know if you've made New Year's resolutions yet. You've done that whole thing. You know, this year I resolve to plant a hosta by my back door. Like what, you know, what, what's your, this year I'm going, I'm going to organize the basement this year. You know, this year I'm going to hit the gym. You know, you know what's, our, what's our resolution? Those are all good things. But I just challenge you to hope big and to put your hope in God. Specifically, here's what I want to challenge you. I would, I would challenge you and myself, just put this out there as you're making New Year's resolutions, to identify in your life and in my life like one thing that is a major deficiency in our Christian walk. Major deficiency. You know, as you look at your life and you say, boy, that's the area that needs work. As we read about Nehemiah rebuilding the walls around Jerusalem, there are these big gaping holes. You know, find one of those holes. Maybe it's a hole that's so big and it's been there so long you've just kind of learned to live life with it. And you say, this is just how I am. Something perhaps in your character that's a flaw. Maybe it's anger or impatience or um, you know, selfishness or arrogance or greed or lust. Maybe it's, it's something in your life that you know you need to change. There's something that you're engaged in, a habit, a relationship that needs to go so that you can start a new life and follow Christ because that relationship or habit has actually become sinful and destructive. Or maybe it's, maybe it's something God's been calling you to for years and you keep giving Him the stiff arm. And yet there's something in your heart calling you to something and it's time to go do whatever it is that God's calling you to do. What is it? Can you think of what it is? Do you have that big thing in your mind? This is what I would challenge you to do this year. Would be to make a resolution to cry out to the high priest to save completely in that area of your life. Don't, don't make this resolution. Okay, good. Yeah, I got it, Pastor. I'm going to go out and fix it. No, 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 no. You can't. The resolution is, I'm going to get up every morning before my feet hit the ground. I'm going to say, God, I need you to work your power in my life in this area that I've just almost written off in a fresh way to change me anew and change my life. Do we really believe that Christ can save us completely? And if we do, let's act upon it and call upon Him. Because unlike everything else in life that is temporary and fleeting, we have a high priest who lives forever who is able to save completely those who come to God through Him because He always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest meets our needs. Let's pray.
Oh Lord Jesus, we worship You and humble ourselves before You. We, we confess, Lord, that You are great and awesome. Lord, deepen our understanding of what You've done for us, Jesus. Deepen our belief in Your power. God, I pray for anyone here who's been looking for God, who believes in God, but just can't seem to put it all together. I pray, Lord, that today You would show before them the door of Jesus Christ and that it would suddenly glow in their hearts and minds and they would reach out and take hold of Christ and enter in. And God, I pray for those of us who have entered in but who are weary, who are struggling. Lord, I pray that we would have fresh faith to believe that You're our High Priest and that we would even directly identify some area of our life that needs to be turned over to You and begin praying this year that You would specifically change us, God. Lord, I pray this might be a year of tremendous growth for our congregation. Not growth in numbers of people sitting in pews, but growth in transformed lives of the people who are already in the pews. God, we would love to see You work in our midst by Your power. Lord, we want to see a revival among Your people. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.